Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 14 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 24 and 25, and I'm joined today by the host and brand director of Coffee with Kenobi, as well as a feature blogger for StarWars.com and the co-author of the Star Wars book from DK Publishing, Dan Z. Dan, how are you doing, man? Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on Outer Rim Reads. I am very excited to talk about this great book. Yeah, very excited to have you on. Before we get started, do you mind giving the listeners uh, an idea of your background with Star Wars, with the series, and then also with Thrawn as a character and with this book specifically? Sure. Well, uh, I mean, as far as just Star Wars and literature, I've been a big Star Wars fan my entire life. I still remember seeing the original in 1978 at a drive-in in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it's always just been very much a part of my life. I mean, heck, even when I got married, when they said, you may now kiss the bride, when we left the church... They played the throne room music from the end of A New Hope as we were leaving the, the church. So <laughs> it's, it's always been my, somehow my, I got that, my wife to agree to that, which is great. But so that has been fun. And of course, through Coffee with Kenobi, now going on seven years, which is hard to believe. Wow. We've been looking at, you know, films, TV, literature, comics, all kinds of great stuff. So it's, it's always been such a fun thing to break down and dissect. But as far as Thrawn goes, Thrawn is, is a character that I remember from you know, the Timothy Zahn original trilogy, you know, Heir to the Empire. And I remember really liking him. I liked his style, the fact that he wasn't a traditional Star Wars bad guy, that he uses brain more than his fists. And then, of course, when it was announced that he was going to be in Star Wars Rebels, when they announced that at Celebration, Damn. I was incredibly thrilled because I knew what we were getting ourselves into, a very, very challenging villain that was going to be Outside the box for the crew of the ghost, and boy, did he deliver. He really did. I like how you're, how you're saying he's a different kind of villain, not what we're used to with Vader and Palpatine. You know, as much as Palpatine is a mastermind, Thrawn is... He plays a different game, and it's been really great to get this book. I, I have read the Legends trilogy as well, and uh, this trilogy as well. I, I don't think disappointed whatsoever. It's been great to have him reintroduced back into canon. And, you know, the new book's coming out soon. I'm... I'm loving this new dose of Thrawn that we're getting and I did finish Rebels recently and I was pretty satisfied with how they portrayed him there. It is much different and perhaps more difficult to portray him with as much depth in the context of a show but I think they did a really great job. I agree and the one thing I always sort of struggled with is I felt like he got a little more aggressive in Rebels as far as you know obviously he was more violent but um, yeah. even more um more brutal. And I mean, I think you could argue, and especially in the early parts of this newer trilogy, that Thrawn is a bad guy, but he's not a mean bad guy. But I feel yeah. like in Rebels, it kind of takes a turn. But I suppose you could argue that through the third book in the new trilogy that you could make a claim for that transition. I mean, and Thrawn did have a lot of input in what Dave Filoni and everybody was doing with Star Wars Rebels. But it's definitely interesting to kind of see his progression. For sure. I, I was thinking about it the other day on the way to work. I was kind of comparing and contrasting his portrayal in the, in the books compared to Rebels. And there are a few moments that I, I think that they kind of missed the mark with him as we know him from the books. But overall, it's objectively one of the... I think one of the best characters in Star Wars uh, yes. uh, canon, in my humble opinion. Um, I might agree. be a little biased, but... <laughs> no, it's I totally agree. I, think, I don't think too many people will dis dispute that. He's, he's pretty powerful, a 
pretty great presence. Uh, of course, the look of him is, is great as well. Yeah, oh, for sure. Very menacing in his, I guess, character design and also just how he carries himself around. Uh, I love it. So many facets to him. And it's been a great ride getting more of him in, in the literature. And I'm just excited to see where it can go from here. We got a couple of good chapters on our hands today, 24, 25. It's really coming to the tail end of this of this book. I'll give my chapter summary for chapter 24 and then we can start discussing. Yeah, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. Eli comes aboard the insurgent's freighter, posing as a weapons dealer named Horatio Fig. The rebels take him to their leader, who Eli finds out to be Signy, the man who ambushed the Imperials back on the Dromedar. Signy reveals himself to be Night Swan, much to Eli's shock. It had been Night Swan all along who had been trying to destroy Thrawn's career. Eli learns that Night Swan thinks Thrawn is leading the assault on Scrim Island unaware that Thrawn was aboard, planning he and Eli's escape. During their conversation, Night Swan reveals he heard a story of Thrawn helping Anakin Skywalker during the Clone Wars. Suddenly, an explosion rings out through the freighter, and in the ensuing chaos, Eli is able to escape from Night Swan and finds Thrawn in the hangar bay. Together, they return to the task force at Bataan. Fleet Admiral Denasius reassigns the Bataan mission to Thrawn. So how the chapter starts off, obviously Thrawn and Eli had followed the lone freighter from Bataan to the hyperspace coordinates that they had been given. And I thought the name that Thrawn had given Eli to kind of carry in this role play, this impromptu role play, Horatio Fig, Mm -hmm. was kind of comical. They went through some planning uh, initially to just get Eli in this mode where he'd he'd be going aboard the freighter alone. Thrawn had told him that he would be engineering their escape, but Eli had to kind of, you know, mentally prep and Thrawn gave him a a small blaster and a tunic to wear, an imperial tunic to wear. They're prepping for Eli to go aboard alone. I was really impressed with the way that Eli was... because Thrawn pretty much threw him into this. Uh, he, you know, Eli was saying, aren't you coming with me? Where will you be? And Thrawn said, I'll be figuring out a way for us to escape. But there's a lot of trust that we're seeing from Thrawn in these early stages, pretty much just sending Eli into uncharted territory surrounded by enemies. And he's really trusting him to get the job done. What were your thoughts on, on this kind of initial planning between Thrawn and Eli? I think it's a great snapshot, one, in what kind of leadership skills and qualities that Thrawn has, the fact that he's able to do this, the fact that it's dangerous, and then the real possibility that, you know, that someone could die, including him, but he just trusts Thrawn, which I think is cool. But I also think it's a great snapshot into the trust that's been built over time. Eli has seen Thrawn and what he's like. He has seen him be one, two, three, four, five steps ahead of the enemy or his opponent. Probably Thrawn will call someone an opponent as opposed to an enemy in, in, yeah. in this book, especially. And the fact that he distrusts him. And you know how that's a very dangerous thing, but it's also a very, very powerful thing. And it, and it even is addressed, you know, when he's talking later to Night Swan and he says, you know, there was a time when I thought this would have been a great time to betray Thrawn or to uh, kind of throw him under the bus, so to speak. But he doesn't. And he says, you know, things have changed for me. Not anymore. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting. And, and, and you know, personally, from a writing perspective, I love that Timothy Zahn, who's taken us on all these Thrawn adventures and journeys, is able to surprise us. Like, you can't outthink Thrawn. It's very, very hard to anticipate 
what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And this is another great example of that. Their trust has really grown since day one when they when they kind of got stuck together. But I have just love seeing the evolution of how Eli's approached these plans that, you know, Thrawn has, has been with him throughout. And, you know, here there is that mutual trust where Thrawn's trusting Eli to carry this act onwards and find out whatever information he can. And Eli could say, you know what, no, I, I'm not doing this. He could have backed out at some point, but he, you know, you're right. He has that trust for Thrawn that he knows one way or another that, you know, this is, this is how Thrawn wants things to be playing out. And Thrawn's got that great, like, under current of charisma that just he exudes like nuclear energy that it's almost like a tractor beam that you can't help but be sucked into even if you don't want to yeah exactly you know eli kind of just even if he doesn't want to buy into what thrawn's trying to get him to play at you know just you can't help it he's been with all these missions with thrawn he's seen just this mastermind at work and you know his attitude towards thrawn has obviously changed where at first it was this grudging you know i don't want to be with him this isn't part of my plan and now he's he's very much bought into it and i i love this uh, in one of the previous chapters when thrawn and eli were confronting the smugglers on sifar mm-hmm. when they were getting ready to kind of engage these smugglers thrawn said that you'll know when to open yeah. fire and yeah. here we see very much a mirror image of that when he's saying to Eli, because he gives Eli this tunic and he says he's modified the insignia uh, plaques on the tunic. And he says, when the time comes, press the tile closest to your chest. And he says, you'll know when. And he doesn't give any specifics to Eli at all. He's just, he tells him, you'll know. It's simple, but it just speaks volumes towards this trust that you're talking about that Thrawn knows that Eli can get the job done. And I'm just, I'm rooting for Eli to finally accept the confidence in in himself. Everyone else believes in him, except for Eli himself. And which sometimes I'm a little exasperated at that, but you know, props to Eli for really diving into this with Thrawn. It's a really scary situation. It not only shows that Eli trusts Thrawn, but that Thrawn trusts Eli, or at least he trusts the process. And I just don't feel like you would pick anybody for this mission. And I don't want to get too far ahead of what you're going to ask, but I, I like that he, they talk about the fact that Thrawn withheld key information from him too. Yeah, and Thrawn has really come to trust Eli to put the pieces together himself, where there's so many times in this mm-hmm. book where he could have just spoon-fed the answers to Eli. But he never has. He's always been prompting Eli and training Eli to be able to piece those bits of information together for himself. And, you know, Eli does do well. He does deliver. In this next scene in the chapter, he is aboard the freighter. And he's getting a little bit of swagger here, which I love, because uh, one of the insurgents kind of calls him out for wearing this imperial tunic. He's saying, you know, I knew you were an imperial. And I love Eli's response here. He says, and I quote, and you're exactly the kind of idiot I wear this for. Did you even notice that it doesn't fit? And, you know, followed up by someone else says, oh, look, it's also got a blaster hole in it. And so the disguise is working. But I just I love this kind of contemptuous attitude that Eli puts on to really get into this smuggler role where he could easily just choke in this moment. But he just he gets into this role. And I just love that opening response where he's letting them know exactly what he's trying to convince them who he is yeah eli shows the grit that thrawn obviously sees inside of him where he knows that he's tough and that he's able to take care of business when he needs to and i think it's very effective very effective indeed especially with i think he handles himself very well in 
this uh, in this next part of the chapter where yeah. they do take him to the shipmaster's quarters and he walks in and I don't know there's been a few moments like this in, in the book I guess the the one I'm thinking back is when Price walked into the office to have Moff Gotti revealed to her and she was surprised to see him there and here Eli is taken to this office and he is surprised to see Signe and you know we remember Signe from one of the very early chapters we haven't heard of him since but you know he was the one who ambushed them on the dromedar and it turns out that he is night swan and were we expecting this i i think the first time that i read this i was totally blindsided because we hadn't heard this name since maybe like chapter four or five right. and here we are at 24 and and it's signy is that this is the big reveal signy is night swan but did this catch you by surprise what were your thoughts at this reveal I loved it, and I thought it was fun. And, and it, at first, I thought I had to kind of flip back to remember what kind of what was going on. Because sometimes, when especially with the Zahn novel, there are so many um, names that you need to yeah. almost take <laughs> keep a reading journal and write things down. And I think, which I encourage my students to do, it's actually quite helpful. But it was great because, I mean, if you look at where sort of it lies in the book, I mean, we're near the sort of the climax of the book anyway where things start to unravel or, and the plot starts to sort of reveal itself as far as the payoff. So it made sense structurally, but it was a nice surprise because I wasn't expecting it in this moment per se. You knew, you knew something yeah. was going to happen, but the fact that it was on this level was pretty cool. Kind of like you're saying, it's reaching the climactic point of the book, but I think even knowing that at this point something might happen, we I don't think <laughs> I was prepared for this to be the moment where we find out who Night Swan is, or even t for Eli to be alone when he's meeting Night Swan. Maybe I thought that the first time we got introduced to Night Swan would be when Thrawn encounters him, but you know, you know Eli's kind of taking the limelight here with uh, finding out who Night Swan is, and I know that there was one point earlier in the book where Thrawn Eli and Yularen were talking about Night Swan when the name started popping up more and more. And Eli's thoughts right after that conversation shifted to Signy. And I always thought that was kind of an odd transition where maybe looking back in hindsight, that might have been a subtle hint, but I don't even know. Maybe it was just a coincidence, but either way, <laughs> you know, Signy is Night Swan, and that, that is, uh, you know, Eli's shocked, he's caught off guard. Right. And, you know, Night Swan's got some intimidation going where he takes Eli's blasters and kind of points them on the desk facing directly at Eli. So, you know, it's kind of a, a subtle threat. If he tries anything, you know, he's, he's dead. But he does tell Eli that Thrawn is his target here. He thought that, you know, Thrawn would be with him. He has no intention of killing Eli. And I always respected that earlier in the book, you know, I think one of Signy's henchmen, Angel, was really bent on just roughing up the Imperials. He didn't care who he had to kill to, right. you know, get the payout, the money. But Signy always had this air of, of having a semblance of honor and not harming the prisoners. And here, you know, we see that again where you know, he could just easily kill Eli. You know, Eli doesn't really mean anything to him. It doesn't matter if he lives or dies in, in Signy's eyes, perhaps. But you know, he lets him live. And, you know, as much as now Signy is very much the bad guy, I don't know, something from this book, I, I just love how there's more to it than just black and white, good and bad. You know, even the bad guys, so to speak, can have respectable qualities, I guess. Right. Well, there's sort of an honor among thieves thing to a degree yeah. because he's just not evil for the sake of evil. He's got a code 
of ethics and you can work with that and Thrawn obviously works with that but I also think it's great because even though that is clearly in play I think Zahn does a really wonderful job of creating a tense scene I mean I mean you know I I think that Eli may be a little scared to thrown off guard but he doesn't show up per se but we as readers do be we're scared for Eli whether Eli yeah. knows it or not and I think that's powerful writing yeah, definitely setting the scene because we don't know what's going to happen here. You know, this is right. uncharted territory. We, we know they don't have any backup. We don't know what Thrawn is doing. And I love that air of kind of just mystery and intrigue that Zahn has created around Thrawn in these moments because all we're given about him is that he's engineering their escape. We don't know what that looks like. We don't have any perspective from him. We just know that he's somewhere doing something. Yep. And all Eli can do is trust Thrawn, and all we as the readers in this moment can do is trust Thrawn. And I, I love, you know, setting that scene and that creating that tension, like you're saying, from Zahn. And I've been really impressed with his writing so far, and this is just another fine example. Yeah, I think the guy's got a real future. Yeah, <laughs> safe to say. Yeah, I think he could, he could get away with writing a couple more books. <laughs> So um, we find out that Night Swan all along had been the one trying to bring Thrawn down. And you know he's saying that with kind of some regret because, because he thinks that Thrawn is on Scrim Island. You know, we know that it's Admiral Durrell who's leading the uh, failed attack there, but Signy, Night Swan, thinks that it's Thrawn. So he's thinking Thrawn's done for. And he's saying this with some regret because he's saying that he, he tried to destroy him politically, but that didn't work. And the only way that he could get rid of Thrawn was to try and kill him with, you know, assuming that he would be leading this Scrim Island assault. And he said that, you know, he had been influencing high command to try to get rid of Thrawn. And I was wondering what kind of position, how much influence and pull does Night Swan have where he could have an in with high command? I was really surprised at that. I didn't think that he would be in a position, per se, to influence the decisions of Imperial High Command. You know, I also bet that they would be more than happy to to help him take down Thrawn. We know that they didn't like him at all. But that kind of surprised me. I was not expecting him to have that kind of influence within the Imperial politics as well. Sure. Well, I mean, to quote Han Solo, that's the real trick, isn't it? Because it's it's <laughs> it's a little unclear because you're not really sure... That's another way, again, of building tension and suspense, because for all Eli knows, he can only trust Thrawn, or maybe he can't trust Thrawn, which obviously in the next chapter, they really kind of try to introduce that, which we'll get to that soon enough. But I think that's a great way to build sort of suspicion uh, and doubt in the reader's mind, because if the reader doesn't know who to trust, then it becomes more palpable that, that Eli doesn't know who to trust. Exactly. And Night Swan does not expound on that at all too he just leaves it at that and we're left to wonder and Eli's left to wonder and I just love how arm in arm we are with Eli here where readers and Eli alike are just these are just fresh punches each time and not really knowing what to make of it but again props to Eli's composure here this is a lot of information being thrown at him that he's taken really well and he does realize that he is in the advantage here as much as you know Night Swan's got a couple of blasters pointed at him Night Swan is very much you know, the one running the ship, literally. Um, but Eli has the upper hand here because Night Swan doesn't know that Thrawn is there. And so that gives Eli some kind of uh, some comfort, some solace. And he's trying to kind of counter Night Swan here and saying that even Scrim Island wouldn't be enough to get rid of Thrawn and that he's got powerful allies in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get this moment where 
Night Swan pieces together that Thrawn's powerful friends go to the highest position in the Empire if we're able to get this non-human from the unknown regions to become an admiral. And we get this reveal here where it's just, I think, this great writing from Zahn here where we're seeing Night Swan shock and surprise, you know, that was him. And he's kind of piecing together that Thrawn was the one he had heard about that had helped General Skywalker in the Clone Wars. And so Night Swan knows this story that we've been wondering ever since Thrawn name-dropped Anakin Skywalker. It's really gripping because it it makes you, again, wonder what's going to happen, which is why the reveal of the second book was so key. And also because you don't really understand what this information means, what the context is. And it seems pretty clear even from the beginning of the book that Thrawn knows this is one of his big pieces for his, his game of chess, that he's constantly playing with everybody who he encounters. But it also sort of shows that there's a little bit of frustration too, right? It it shows that Thrawn is not easy to be captured. You know, it shows that he's not easy to be sort of outfoxed, as it were. And I think it causes a lot of frustration for Night Swan because Night Swan is establishing himself as, as a force to be reckoned with. But unlike other villains, which just sort of seem to just take for granted they'll be able to take care of business, I feel like there's still so much mystery for him about Thrawn that it adds a little bit uh, to Thrawn's mystique, ironically. Yeah, I've loved the relationship, so to speak, between Night Swan and Thrawn throughout this book, where, you know, Night Swan is clearly, he's had a hand in a lot of these encounters that Thrawn has dealt with. He's been kind of drawing Thrawn into this game between the two of them. Uh, but I, I love how it, there's this this mutual respect between the two where they kind of have come to terms with the fact that there are things about the other that they don't know, but they're just they're doing the best with the tactics and the strategy that they have at hand to try and get the upper hand over over each other. But it's clear that Thrawn right here is ahead of Night Swan, you know, because Night Swan doesn't know that he's even on the ship to begin with. But yeah. the whole time Night Swan has kind of had the upper hand over Thrawn in a, in a small way because Thrawn hasn't been able to piece together who he is. And it's I've just loved the the mutual respect between two very brilliant uh, opponents here. And as we see here, Thrawn uh, is able to maneuver the situation to, to his liking, which I think is done in brilliant fashion that we'll get to uh, shortly. But you had mentioned earlier how Eli had had kind of come to terms with that he hasn't been seeing himself in Thrawn's shadow as much these days, where he mm. he doesn't see his career as much in the dark as he used to, because you know Night Swan is kind of talking casually, saying that you know once Thrawn's out of the way, and kind of we see this overconfidence here that Eli also calls him out for. He says kind of the equivalent of Luke's uh, your overconfidence is your weakness he uh, he's he's telling Night Swan to you know take take it easy in the overconfidence here and Night Swan is kind of speculating as as to what Eli's career would be once Thrawn's out of the way and Night Swan's saying you won't be in Thrawn's shadow anymore and Eli's just thinking to himself he doesn't say anything to Night Swan but he has this thought that he hasn't thought of himself as in Thrawn's shadow for a long time we don't know how long because we've seen a lot of struggle in the book so far with him just coming to terms with how he hasn't been progressing as much as he'd like to and for a long time Thrawn was getting all these promotions where Eli was staying as an ensign but we see kind of this moment of inner peace in Eli where yeah, he's been content where he's at for a while. I thought that was a really nice moment, and we see how far Eli's come 
when he has this thought. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. You can tell his progression as a character, his acceptance, the trust that goes into that. And also, there's a, a nice dose of humility. You know, pride, especially amongst the Empire, is very, very high, and everybody mm-hmm. always wants to get ahead, and it's very much a, sort of a cutthroat uh, survival of the fittest situation. But the fact that we don't see that from Eli, and we see a bit of inner peace, and certainly, as, as you mentioned, certainly a, a nice heaping dose of humility, but accepted humility, not forced upon him, I think plays well into Eli, and it also sort of parlays into why Thrawn would trust him in the first place. Yeah, I don't think that if Eli had been just like any other Imperial, um, I don't think Thrawn would have trusted him in the first place to begin with. But right. I think from the moment that he uh, that he encountered Eli in chapter uh, chapter one, chapter two, he knew that he was different. And we've been able to see his character development over the book, how he is very different from the other Imperials, where you know, he's able to have this humility that... I don't think we would see from many other characters, you know, maybe barring Yularen um, or Captain Chino and Virgilia that we've seen earlier in the book. But Eli has definitely been setting himself apart as much as Thrawn has in the book. I've, I've talked a lot about how Thrawn has set himself apart from the other Imperial admirals and officers, but Eli just as much, I think. Right. No, I agree. So, yeah, uh, in this next scene, we kind of get the idea of what Thrawn had been up to, where this explosion just rings out through the freighter, and Eli kind of sees this moment uh, as the time that he would know when to press that tile in his tunic. And when he pressed it, the blaster that Thrawn had given him pretty much exploded like a smoke bomb, which I thought was really cool. Um, and uh, Eli is able to escape to the hangar uh, and, and find Thrawn in the chaos, because I think we gather that however big this explosion was, the ship is going down, it seems. And they're able to, Thrawn and Eli are able to take one of the insurgent shuttles and fly off back to the task force at Bataan. Mm-hmm. And I, I like this conversation between Thrawn and Eli when they're in the shuttle, they're escaping, and Thrawn tells Eli that he expected Night Swan to be there. And Eli, is, he's very frustrated when he hears that because obviously I think we would also agree with Eli that we would have, you know, Eli would have liked to have known beforehand what he was getting into, especially if he was going to be facing off with, you know, the big bad guy, right? But Thrawn makes a good point here, and he says that, you know, Eli wouldn't have been able to hold such a convincing act if he hadn't been genuinely surprised by what he encountered there, which is a fair point from Thrawn. Well, yeah, he says, so you just walked us into his trap, and he says he needed to believe we've been caught unaware, as Thrawn said, otherwise he would have been on his guard. And I think it's it's risky, it's reckless, and it's it's completely thrown in. And it's sort of interesting to me how he's able to orchestrate this plan and explain it like, well, yeah, it was crazy, it was reckless, you probably could have died, but it worked really well. And he says it was such a calm, rational deliverance. And I think you accept it, even though from anywhere else. Like if Han Solo says it, you're like, you crazy scoundrel, and you don't buy it for a second, <laughs> and you're angry. But with Thrawn, Eli's not angry, he just... I don't know if I want to say here that he's impressed, although I think it certainly adds to sort of the legacy of Thrawn in Eli's mind. But the fact that he just accepts it and, you know, I'm sure he's a little bit annoyed, although there's not really evidence in the in the novel that, that gives us that. That's just sort of something we're sure. putting in, is in our own minds. But I think it's compelling. And then he starts to say, okay, so 
that means this kind of reminds me of Holmes and Watson, especially from the uh, yeah for sure the more current <laughs> one. It's, there's I never really thought about it until this conversation with you here, Andrew. But it's pretty cool. It's like okay, so you were here in the engine compartment. Well, I was in the escape pod, and then you know, is this what you used to escape from another situation from earlier in the book? Yes, you know, it's really cool. I love it. Yeah, I, I love the moments when after the fact they can kind of debrief and yeah. you know Eli is able to see oh so that's what you're doing. Or it's um, like Dumbledore and Harry Potter at the end of each book. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about that connection. That's that's a good one. <laughs> um, but you know it's um, fun moments too. I think when we see how Thrawn's plans come together from Eli's point of view, I, I love these Eli point of view sections where. You know, because if it's through Thrawn's eyes, we probably would just see him give the answers there and then. But with Eli, we're able to see kind of through his eyes how the plans are, are pieced together and how he's able to talk about it with Thrawn afterwards and then find out. And, you know, with his own analysis of the situations pieced together. Oh, so that's that's mm-hmm. what, why you were doing what you were doing. So good moment there. And yeah, adds to that legacy of Thrawn in, in Eli's mind. I like that. I like that bit. Yeah, so they're they're back with the task force at Bataan, and Thrawn tells Eli that he had uh, Captain Brento, who he had left at Bataan in the shuttle to monitor the other seven freighters that were going towards the mainland. He had got Captain Brento to instruct the other ships in the task force to combine all of their tractor beams on Dural's uh, Star Destroyer, the Judicator, to drag it out of the combat zone because it was getting battered. Pretty much just towing a Star Destroyer to safety, which I thought was just a, a brilliant plan. And Eli is telling Thrawn that he doubts that Dural is going to even acknowledge that he had help in that moment. And true to that word, uh, in this last scene of the chapter on the Chimera's Bridge, they're kind of having this conference call between the admirals, and Dural did not acknowledge the help that he got from Thrawn, from Captain Brento in his report. But we kind of get justice here because uh, Fleet Admiral Donasius asks Duril when he'll be able to travel again. And Duril's thinking, okay, he's sending me back into combat soon. This is going to be great. This is the revenge that I need. But he misunderstands because Donasius is sending him to a repair yard. And he's instead giving the mission to Thrawn to kind of sweep up his mess, mop up his mess on Bataan. And so, you know, kind of good riddance to Dural, very unlikable character right off the bat. And now we're seeing this kind of climactic battle be given to Thrawn. Any any thoughts on how the chapter ended? I thought there would be more conflict uh, and more frustration, but I guess I sort of see his stunned disbelief transforms into outrage and wounded pride. It is written in italics. This operation was given to me. I'm perfectly capable of seeing it through. And it is, again, it's the pride is the ego. It's the I can't beat this guy. He's, you know, one, two, three, four, five steps ahead, as I said earlier in the podcast. And I, I think it's fun because basically what you're thinking is, all right, I want to turn the page and see what's going to happen here. Yeah, exactly, because we know that this is playing out very much how Thrawn knew it was going to be, where as soon as they had given Duril this assignment, instead of Thrawn asking for more time and them complying with that, he knew that Duril would fail. He knew it from the get-go. And you know now he's able to have this battle play out on his own terms. He knows the insurgents' tactics, and, and Duril's out of the picture now. I do love that moment where he kind of just looks at Thrawn and the outrage and the, and the wounded pride, very much how Senator Ranking looked at 
Price when he was taken away by the ISB, helpless in the moment. Yes. But he's just being carried away. And I love those two parallels here where our two main characters are being put in the in the limelight where they deserve right now. And going into this next chapter, this battle for Scrim Island, it'll be on Thrawn's terms. So very good chapter here. A lot that happened in 24. Uh, any closing thoughts before we jump into 25? No, it's it's great. I appreciate your, your questions and uh, your thought process. It's fascinating. Yeah, thank you. I'll give my summary for 25 and then we'll break that down. The Chimera and the 96th Task Force prepare to assault Scrim Island. Thrawn's three light cruisers approach first, and although they are struck by ion cannon fire, they are able to continue pressing the assault. The Chimera followed behind as the cruisers shielded it from the insurgents' fire. The Imperials are able to destroy the island's defenses, and the rebels surrender. Afterward, Arinda Price comes aboard the Chimera with Colonel Yularen. Knowing that her parents are in the city the Imperials will attack, Price volunteers to infiltrate the city. Under the guise of visiting her parents, she tells Thrawn she and an ISB agent will gather information on the city's defenses in order to aid the Imperial assault. Although Thrawn disapproves of the plan, he concedes to Price and Yularen. Colonel Yularen raises concerns to Eli over Thrawn's arrangement of his crippled task force. So this chapter starts out with pretty right in our face. It's showtime. <laughs> the task force is is getting ready to attack Bataan. Before they move into position, you know, before we even talk about the finer details, um, what were your thoughts on this chapter as a whole? Well, I mean, Ariana Price is tricky for me because, well, I said it's a, it's a bit of a challenge with Thrawn in Rebels versus the novels. I really feel like Price is vastly different in the show. Mm. than she is in the book you can almost see her point of view in this chapter or in the book and because she's really she does care about her family she certainly has a ton of pride but she she's proud of where she's from and she she's also got that alpha quality about her as well so it's it's a bit more of a showcase for her but it, but it was good for me to see her and Thrawn interacting more I feel like that was sort of a payoff I, I want more of throughout this novel so so this is one of the better ones for that i very much love the few moments that we've gotten where the two of them are able to interact and coordinate i could probably have a whole other episode on just comparing and contrasting price and thrawn from the books to the show yeah i think i have a, a some very strong views on i i'm not really a fan of how they portrayed price in the show Me um, but that's a rabbit hole that's no, true <laughs> But you're right, their interactions in this book have been some of the better moments, I think, because we see just over Price's progression from the start how she is very ruthless, but she's very cunning and analytical, very much like Thrawn, just in a different facet of the Empire. Yeah. And just such a fascinating character, you know, for better or for worse. She is, I think, a little bit more sinister than Thrawn, um, at least uh, as they're portrayed in, in the books. But as we'll come to discuss when she's on the Chimera, we do see uh, time and time again through this book where no matter what kind of front of just you know imperial arrogance and, and pride and authority that she puts up, you know, we see her later on 
really caring about family. So there's still humanity and common values that we would have that Price holds on to as well, no matter how deep she buries them. But we'll get to that after we... Yeah, after we get through this assault. So before the ships move in, Commander Pharaoh and Eli are kind of having this little side chat where Pharaoh's telling Eli that, I'm just going to quote it right here, and minds like his are few and far between. Too often, the men and women in senior command positions are there because of who they know rather than what they know. We haven't gotten a lot of Commander Pharaoh in this book because Theron has only taken command of the Chimera recently here. But I love how aware and and just woke Thrawn's crew is. Like it seems that they're so they're so different from the other commanders and officers in the Empire that we've been exposed to, and even in small moments like this, where because you know, Pharaoh could easily fall into just this the same Imperial mindset of just Thrawn's non-human, therefore I dislike him. You know he's rising to power quickly. He doesn't deserve it. I don't like him. She could easily fall into that, but. I just love how aware she is of how good he is, and she's able to respect that. I, I love that little moment there. To me, I sort of took it as she's fishing to see where he's at or just sort of testing him, and he's mm-hmm. very aware of that, and he is taking a page out of Thrawn's book, uh, steps ahead of, of where Pharaoh is going and basically saying, you know, I don't have the Admiral's genius for tactics, and she says, well, once the plans are explained, you understand them. And Eli had to smile. Once they're explained, ma'am, anyone can understand them. So how it's always sort of um, an undercurrent of playfully batting things away. Like, think of Eli as in the batter's box, and, and Pharaoh keeps throwing these <laughs> breaking balls or outside pitches, and he keeps fouling them away. And, you know, he's not getting out, but he's just keeping it, the conversation of but play. But it there. But just being frustrating, but being very casual and cool about it, or you couldn't overtly accuse him of anything. It's just kind of playing the sort of the, you know, I'm just a simple soldier ma'am role that the Empire typically historically likes, but he's taking it to another place, which I think is brilliant. I like that very much. That's a whole new way of, of looking at that interaction. That's definitely not how I was seeing it, but that's why I love having these other views on the on the show where it's, yeah. that's very, that could be very much what was coming out of that situation too, because, you know, we don't know a lot about Pharaoh's motives here and and you know, we're still getting to know her but you know I, I do love what you're saying about Eli where he plays it very smart here yeah. um, like you're saying it in, in sometimes a very frustrating way for whoever's talking with him here I did like where Pharaoh had pointed out that Eli is one of the only people who can really understand what Thrawn's doing you know and, and he, Eli tries to like you're saying bat it away we're saying you know after it's explained anyone can but I, I love how she comes back to that response where she asks him if he honestly thinks that anyone in that task force then really understands what's happening and obviously the plan hasn't been fully explained to them I, I, I don't think maybe not in as much detail as Eli or Pharaoh would receive but I do think that she's right here. I think I agree with Pharaoh here that it's obvious to Eli, maybe not so much to everyone else. I think it, we we see how much Eli has grown where he thinks, oh, it's of course it, it's obvious to everyone else. Like, sure. but I think that's a testament to how much more keen of a tactical eye he's gotten from Thrawn's training and grooming, right. where it just seems natural to him. Sure. I, I think that's just a testament to his growth, I think. And it's an example of nature as well as nurture, because Eli obviously had the foundation of that already. 
But when you've got a, a mentor like Thrawn, who's is like the ultimate Phil Jackson of the Empire, <laughs> then you've got the, the opportunity to really take Eli and take him to another place. And, and I also think there's a little bit of peacocking here, too, because to me, Eli might know and be able to figure it out. But even we saw a couple of pages before that he doesn't know. So I feel like part of that Damn. is sort of like the kid saying, well, my big brother could beat up yours. <laughs> you know, you just kind of there's a little bit of that that peacocking and swagger combined with the the real possibility that he is starting to kind of put pieces together in the puzzle a little more readily too. Yeah, a little bit of both for sure. Uh, I just I love how he's coming to terms more that you know Thrawn has been grooming him for command uh, mm-hmm. and for a future on the bridge, and you know he's not quite a hundred percent there yet, but he's definitely been you know, having a, a keener, more adept eye to. It's the grander picture in these in these situations. Yeah. And so the three light cruisers approach first. I love this strategy here where they're just being pelted with ion fire, but they, you know, they they have auxiliary drives, they're able to keep the attack going. I love how those three cruisers are just acting as a shield for the Chimera, just drifting on down. And the ion cannons can't get a shot on the Chimera because, you know, as soon as, uh, you know, a cannon on the north bank opens up, one of the cruisers moves to kind of compensate for that new vector. I was in awe at this, and it'll I'll become in more awe once we talk about how they took down the defenses. But, you know, just even on this descent where we're seeing this just teamwork from the cruisers just shielding the chimera what, what were your thoughts on this initial uh part of the assault i feel like when we're watching space battles or with massive warships or even like in world war ii footage or when you read about them it's hard to sort of understand how this isn't legitimately one person behind the wheel and a, and a bunch of people running around doing whatever like they literally all have to work together in, in synchronicity yeah to make something happen. And this is an example of Thrawn using his crew and his tactics for the betterment of the cause, not for selfish gain, not for power or intimidation, but because it's all part of his chess match. And he's using all of the players on the on the field to make that happen. But it was for the Empire's glory and for the Emperor's glory, but also for the sake of his crew too, at least. And that might be me just sort of reading into it, but it, it does seem like they kind of go out of their way to, to sort of show how Thrawn is thinking again, and I feel like I've broken records, so I apologize, but how he's thinking <laughs> ahead of everything and he's making it all work together in his own favor. But again, he he, he does it in such with a, such a slow tactical burn. And, you know, even when there are surprises, when I'm reading, like, I mean, anytime you read something by Timothy Zahn, you have to kind of reread certain sections over and over again. But yeah. particularly in the, in the massive space battles, I have to think about sort of visualize what it looks like and what Don is trying to explain to us. Because first I'm like, well, I need to understand what's actually happening before I can understand the genius of Thrawn. So sometimes it does get a little bit tricky to to sort of follow down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I've experienced the same as well. I I think... You know, especially also just preparing for the podcast and being able to, you know, I can't talk about what's happening if I don't understand it myself. So it's, uh, and I've found that with this book and uh, very much with also the the Legend trilogy as well, just uh, sometimes his writing, like, if you're not paying attention to each letter, (laughs) then you'll miss what's happening. And I did have to reread this part a few times just to kind of be able to visualize the angle that they're coming down and what it's looking like when the ships are moving. But it's just so good. That's just 
credit to, to his writing for better or for worse i just i love how detailed it is where every detail counts to this picture that he's painting just very much like how thrawn treats these situations too and i love how you were talking about these maneuvers like a chess game that thrawn is playing because we see a contrast between duril's assault of the island where he just had all of the ships just fire their turbo lasers into the shield generator where here like each ship is working together like you're saying kind of just like this carefully woven together pattern of movement and and working together as a unit instead of just this individualistic mentality that we've come to expect from the empire it's just so different and so yeah when they get into range when the chimera gets into range uh, it doesn't fire at the island it fires at the water around the island and you know when i saw what zahn was creating here the image that he was creating here I was just in awe. I think there's this quote here from this uh, frigate that's above just observing the battle. And I quote, The man was trying to stay calm and professional, but Eli could hear the awe creeping into his voice. And that, that's just same. That's I was, uh, they literally created tsunami waves mm -hmm. to overflow the defense emplacements. I was blown away by this. <laughs> Yeah, it's something I, and I thought, why didn't I think of that? Because it's just not something that's typically done, which I mean, again, is, it speaks to the creativity of this author and the brilliance of Thrawn as a tactician and a strategist and the way he is able to, you know, it's, it's like, um, I keep comparing to these other popular culture things, but it's like when um, in the first Captain America, when they're all supposed to climb up that flagpole and he just looks and um, lowers <laughs> the flag down. You know, yeah. he, he just thinks of using what he's got to work with instead of reinventing the wheel and trying to sort of out-muscle things. And when it ultimately becomes sort of a muscle, my gun is bigger than yours situation. But to get to that, he uses nature, and it's brilliant. Yeah, it really was. I think I just, I've written the word brilliant like multiple times yeah. in my notes. <laughs> just, I would not have thought that, why shoot at the island if you could just flood the defense emplacements by literally creating tsunami waves. I, I love that. Um, and so, yeah, the insurgents have no choice but to surrender. And as the scene ends, you know, they've claimed victory over this island battle. We see Thrawn speaking to his bridge crew. And uh, the text says, and I quote, He half turned to the crew pit, and Eli could see an especially harsh glitter in his glowing red eyes. And tell them, he added quietly, that the cost will be severe if any of his hostages are harmed. And I love this. Just, again, we see some, I don't know if it's menace, we see a coldness to Thrawn here, how deadly he can be, you know, if the terms that he's laying out are breached. But we, I think more importantly here, we see his value for human life. And he was very insistent when they were even planning this whole mission that he didn't want to blow up the island. He wanted to save the hostages. And I just, I love this moment where he's letting them know very firmly these hostages are to be kept safe and alive. And I just think that sets Theron apart from other officers who might not really care for hostages. They would just care about defeating the rebels, but Theron... Is, you know, to him, it's why not both? You know, why not defeat the rebels, but also save the hostages, which I think is just great from him. This is an example of why I sometimes scratch my head at the version of him in, in the animated series, too. Because mm -hmm. I feel like he, he will senselessly kill Imperials uh, to prove a point or to flex his muscles, sort of like Vader, uh, although not with yeah. the Force. Because this is one of the main examples where I thought, well, this isn't like the Thrawn in the book. Where are we getting that transitional piece? Why is there such a drastic change? Because it's almost like a different person. 
And interestingly enough, yeah. it doesn't come across as altruistic. It just comes across as uh, sort of honor in battle, which I, yeah. I think is important. I so badly want to get into the <laughs> the contrast between the book and the, I know. And the show. I'll try I, to I, I did notice. You. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's great. It's it's helping me to you know even just flush out my own thoughts. But I did notice multiple times in the show where you know he would sacrifice imperial lives kind of seemingly needlessly i know it all kind of played towards him being able to find chopper base and all that but it just did not seem very thrawn like to kind of just uh, let's send in a few walkers and have them blown up uh, just you know just yeah I, <laughs> yeah makes sense. some of the decision making yeah didn't really add up for me but yeah this next scene brings us to price's point of view she is on the chimera now with yularen and we find out that she knows that her parents are in the city that the Imperials will be attacking. And I'm going to give the floor to you. I, I just loved the care for family, the humanity that we see in Price here, where she's very insistent on being able to go in. And she doesn't tell them what she's planning on doing. She's kind of giving this air that, oh, I'm going to go in and get some information on their defenses. But we can gather. She doesn't say this explicitly but we can gather that there's some ulterior motive here where she is trying to get to her family, knowing that they're in just impending danger. And she's pretty upfront about it, too. I mean, you know, two of those civilians are my parents. Those disturbing red eyes narrowed, I see. And Yularen jumps in about how it's not really bad, per se. You know, she's going to wear a disguise, but she wants to go down to Lothal. They won't be expecting to see Governor Price of Lothal, so they won't see her. Your parents will know. And then there's that flashback, uh, which is kind of what propelled her character in the first place we see earlier, much, much earlier in the novel. And it makes you kind of root for her, I guess, to a degree. Yeah. Do you feel the same way? I think so. I know here, you know, I've kind of been on Team Thrawn since the get-go, and here they're very much, you know, Thrawn is not approving of this mission that Price is proposing that she goes into the city. But I think that, just from a point where we're seeing Price wanting to, like you're saying, we're drawn to this connection that kind of just motivated her from the get-go, where her family suffered from the loss of the mine, and, and there's a lot of conflict there, where she's pleading with them to go to Bataan for the deal that she struck with the ranking, and yeah, I think I, I agree with you. As ruthless as Price has been, a lot of the times in this book, we're kind of just reminded of how she is more than just this powerful imperial, right? Where she has other qualities here, and yeah, I was kind of, <laughs> you're right, yeah, kind of rooting for her here where it's like, yeah, I, I want her to get to her family. We, we know that there's probably going to be a lot of loss of life here. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can help but feel for her here where, where she knows that her parents are in danger. Especially when he says, you know, let's see where their, their loyalties lie because Night's mm -hmm. One is quite persuasive. And it even says that she felt her lip twitch. Because you're like, oh, geez, come on. Help help, help her out. What's and then, yeah. and then you think about the reality of you know, the people of Lothal, we know there's pedigree there of rebelling against the Empire and, and sort of learning what side you want to be on and what part you want to, what side of the fence you want to be on, so to speak, before the Empire blows up the fence altogether. And uh, yeah, there's there's some emotion. There's some legitimate empathy and concern. I, I like how you're saying just like, Theron, just help her out here, man, because, you know, he is staying very true to character. He is analyzing this from a very objective point of view where Price here, and we haven't seen a lot of this, I think, throughout the book, but we're seeing her 
kind of just very approaching this from a very emotional stance where Thrawn is not very, you know, he's not as emotional as humans are. And here Price is yeah. like, this is kind of just an emotional connection she has with her parents. This is kind of her way of pleading with, with him. And Yularen is on her side here. So it's pretty much Thrawn that is outnumbered here. And, you know, Price does get what she wants here. But I, I think that in this moment, it's kind of frustrating to see Thrawn just kind of just be cold and impassive and objective here where he's looking at it very factually. Like, you know, we don't know if her parents have joined Night Swan's cause. We don't. But for Price, she doesn't care. She just wants to to be able to help them, which I thought this was a very powerful uh, interaction. There's even like um, about how she's good at getting information. Arianda had to smile at that if Pharaoh only knew how good she was at collecting information. So... You know, while she's worried about her family and, and we empathize, suddenly you're you're drawn to oh yeah, she's a bad guy too. She'll do yeah. <laughs> she'll do whatever it takes and it won't necessarily be ethical to to make things happen and, and and it's a little more digestible because it's family. But you're also very aware of, you know, does the end justify the means? And that's the classic question. Yeah, very much because we don't know what she's planning here um, right. how she will get what she wants all she lets on to them is that she'll go in with an isb agent they'll get some information uh, and we, do, we don't know what it's going to look like for her helping out her parents but as we know like you said you know she'll pretty much do anything to get what she wants and we've seen that side of her time and time again a very interesting stage being set here by zan and it gets even more interesting leading into this last scene of the chapter where Yularen is walking with Price and Eli to Price's shuttle, getting Eli set up with the communications and data cards to kind of be in touch with Price and the ISB agent she'll be with. And he kind of pulls Eli aside here. And this was a very intriguing end to the chapter where he's questioning Thrawn's positioning of his task force because it's basically the three light cruisers from the battle are pretty banged up. They're getting repairs and they're just very much sitting ducks right now. They're very helpless uh, at the moment. And the way that Thrawn has them set up is kind of like, I think as Yularen says, they're set up uh, as if each are on the corner of an equilateral triangle mm -hmm. uh, with 100 kilometers aside. And so these cruisers are too far apart from each other to help each other out if they should be attacked. And the Chimera is too far away from them to help them if they should be attacked by someone coming out of hyperspace. And the way that Eli is kind of seeing this is that Thrawn has set up, and I quote, Thrawn's equivalent of traffic zags, something to slow down a sneak attack by encouraging the raiders to deal with a tempting trio of outlying ships while the Chimera came to full combat readiness. Only the bait was helpless, which meant that any attack would instantly degenerate into a slaughter. Eli felt his throat tighten. Thrawn wouldn't do something that cold-hearted. Surely he wouldn't. And I guess my question to you, would he? That's what they want you to think is, you know, we're again, we're walking that tightrope of you want to root for him. He's mean. He's a bad guy. You want to root for him. He's evil. And that creates a suspense. But I feel like throughout this entire book, Eli is us. We are we are in his psyche. He's the most human like of everybody in this book as far as the most like like a standard regular human being might think, albeit if they were in the Empire. And so as Eli is doubting, so are we, and I think this is a great sort of a vehicle for us to to have that inner conflict about this character that you're still not sure 
if you feel good about rooting for. But the book is called Thrawn, so yeah, <laughs> it loops you in, doesn't it? But I think earlier in the episode, I called Signy the bad guy, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, he's fighting against the Empire. So it's, you know, I, even then I was kind of just skewed into like, th- this book really gets you rooting for Thrawn, where, you know, once I step back, I'm like, okay, Thrawn's of the Empire. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Signy and Night Swan uh, is is fighting for the better cause. But, you know, it, it does get you rooting for him. And I guess this brings us back to another, does the end justify the means? If, yeah. if sacrificing three cruisers to be able to destroy the attackers, if that would make sense. Um, a very tense way to end the chapter where, you know, would Thrawn do whatever it takes to get victory? And I don't know, judging from what we know up till now, I was kind of thinking Eli's getting a little bit too sucked into these suspicions. We know that Thrawn doesn't just throw ships and lives around, but with a battle of this scale with stakes this high, who knows? And and we're we're led into that tension, which I love the way that Zahn is able to just wrap us in with the end of this chapter. It's great. It's great. And it's you know, you know, you look and you can see, oh gosh, we're getting towards the end of this thing. Yeah. Uh, and even Thrawn even gives a little bit of interest. I, I think what's interesting about Thrawn is that while he's clearly the superior mind and he doesn't really have a problem boasting, although it doesn't come across as boasting for the most part, it's just a very matter of fact the way that he does it. But then he, he also introduces the fact that Eli has new and disturbing thoughts, as it says, about you know, basically what's going on here. And I think it's important... Because again, if you have, if there's no conflict and there's no doubt, then then why are you turning the page? Because if Thrawn just yeah. can outthink everybody, what's the point? But the fact that they throw the Eli wrinkle in here and kind of build to that throughout this chapter, I think, really brings it home. It really does, and at the part of the book that you'd expect it to to happen, you know, where these fresh suspicions, these fresh doubts are, you know, this isn't any other smuggler rodeo that they're doing this is something much much more something much larger and you know you're right this keeps us turning the page you know it's it's a good strategy from zahn for sure Uh, and it really draws the reader in in just such a suspenseful way i love how this chapter ended and really setting the stage for an intense end to the book with price going in we don't know how she's going to save her family if that's what she's trying to do we don't know how she's going to do that uh, and we don't know what Thrawn's thinking here. It seems like it doesn't make sense, but things play out the way that he envisions it in the end. So that does um, bring us to the end of chapter 25. Do you have any closing thoughts on the chapter before we close out for today? No, I don't. What about you? I think we've, we've summed everything up pretty well. First of all, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and for talking about these chapters. It was a really fun discussion. I, I loved it. I was wondering if you could let the listeners know if they wanted to find you and your work, where could they do so if you want to talk a little bit about what you do? Yeah, well, thank you, Andrew. Again, thank you so much for having me. I, as a fellow podcast host and, a, and a, an English teacher of high school seniors, I appreciate how you lead discussion. So kudos to you, my friend, for that. Thank you. Uh, but you can find me each and every week on Coffee with Kenobi. We are a podcast at the end. I said, I think I said at the beginning of the show, we've been around for seven years now, which is which is wonderful. We want to make you think about Star Wars. We want to make you laugh. And we want you to feel like you're at a coffee house having intellectual conversations about Star Wars. And you can find us anywhere you can find podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker. YouTube has the audio for it as well. Speaking of YouTube... Every Monday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time on our Facebook page, coffeewithkenobi.com slash live. 
or facebook.com slash coffee with Kenobi, you can find our, our weekly show. Uh, this week we looked at the Memories of the Empire Strikes Back, which was great fun. You can find Coffee with Kenobi all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, again, YouTube. And if you are thinking about starting a podcast or a blog or you already have an established one and you want to build your brand, be sure to reach out to me at danzmedia.com and we can kind of start the process there. You can also find my writing on StarWars.com. I currently am in the middle of a, I don't know if it's in the middle, I'm not sure how long I'll do it, but right now I'm on week five of Teaching with Star Wars, where I take a, a lesson from the films or the literature or anything like that and talk about how we can sort of apply that in our lives. And then if you really like analyzing Star Wars in October, October 20th, the Star Wars book uh, I am the co-author on that. Very, very excited. It's my first Star Wars book, and I got the good honor of writing it with Pablo Hidalgo and Cole Horton. It's really going to have people talking about Star Wars in a lot of exciting ways, and I can't wait till everybody gets a chance to read it. Such a wealth of great work. Uh, I love it. Listeners, I can only highly recommend uh, all of Dan's work. I've also been listening to Coffee with Kenobi, and uh, recently on my commutes, I've been listening to uh, your episodes on the Siege of Mandalore arc oh, thank the Clone you. Wars, and I'm loving it. Uh, so listeners, be sure to check out his work, please. Hey, thanks again so much, brother. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, uh, it was good fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it so much. My pleasure. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media, feel free to give our Twitter account a follow at Outer Rim Read Pod. And you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give the show a good review if you're enjoying it. Good reviews on Apple Podcasts really help other listeners who are interested in Star Wars literature to find Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode 15. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Pull up a chair to the big screen. The next viewing is the Cloud City Sabacc Tournament. There's a lot of hype around Six Truvy and Lando Calrissian.